The rest of us, let's go back to Job chapter 2. Not back, but first time. Job chapter 2. As I've told you, uh, the goal, uh, eventually, once we get past chapter 3, we're going to move much faster through the chapters. Uh, The the, uh, initial plan is to have one lesson on chapter 1 and one lesson on chapter 2. Well, we deviated a little bit. We had two lessons in chapter 1. Hopefully we'll finish chapter 2 today and then one lesson in chapter 3. And then we're going to start looking at themes that will cover the next 20 or so chapters. We have the three cycles of speeches, of interactions, of conversations between Job and his friends. Then we're probably going to take a, so we're going to take a couple, three Wednesdays to do that. And then we're going to also consider the, the, uh, the, all the chapters that Job responds to God and to his friends uh, in the 30s, in the, when you get to the 30s in the book, uh, together, and then Eli, Elihu together, and then God together. So uh, it shouldn't be too long of a series. Um, Adam Hunter said that uh, he used to work with somebody that said that uh, for everything you multiply by pi to know the actual um, length of whatever it is. Uh, Nick said he's adopting that to figure out length of series. When I announce the length of a series, you just multiply by pi, 3.1614, and then you figure out what the length of the series uh, will will be. Betsy came and talked to me, aren't you able to just skip around? Can't you just do that? I said, no, I can't. I'm, I'm just the kind of person that has to go in order through, uh, through a book. Though, for the summertime, we're going to be skipping around different uh, books um, before we go back to a series. Now, as, we, as we transition from the first chapter to the second, things move from bad to worse. The saying, out of the frying pan into the fire, really applies to Job here as we move into chapter 2. This is an apt description of this chapter. Satan's attack on Job and Job's suffering intensifies as Satan now has permission to afflict God or to afflict Job directly. Remember in chapter 1, Satan had permission to attack Job's possession and Job's family. In chapter 2, Satan is going to secure permission to actually attack the person of, of Job directly uh, with more affliction. And I, if there's one thing that uh, we can learn from this chapter, there are many things, but the one thing that I think we want us to, I want us to see here, and I'll say right off the bat, that way if you fall asleep, at least you didn't miss this one thing, is this. We, we learn that the hardest thing to endure in life is not suffering. The hardest thing to endure in life is suffering alone. I think that's, a, that's an important lesson that we see in this chapter. The suffering alone is a very difficult thing. Chapter 2 can also be divided into four scenes. Remember how chapter 1, we divided into four different scenes? And chapter 2 is very much, very much parallel to chapter 1. Uh, the author seems to seem to have meant that with the, as we're going to read in the moment, the... the uh, sons of God, the angels, the court of heaven, uh, getting together again in the presence of God there. And the four scenes of this chapter are these. The, the heavenly court convene, reconvenes, where Satan brings a report and, and is granted permission to afflict Job even further. 
Then scene two, we see Satan doubling down in trying to really get Job to deny God and prove his point. Remember what Satan's main point that he's making here and is going to try to be making throughout the book? Remember what the main point is? God's not worthy to be worshipped. You say that the only reason Job is worshipping your God is because you bless him. Take away the blessings. You're not a God that's worthy, that's worthy to be worshipped. Then in the third scene, we have more, more suffering inflicted into Job. And then the fourth scene, the three amigos show up and uh, they're introduced to us for the remaining of the book. So, scene one, the heavenly court reconvenes. Look at verses one through three. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to the present to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? And there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him, to destroy him without cause. Remember that in chapter 1, we left our human hero sitting on the ground in a pile of dust, praising God despite unthinkable suffering, trials and calamities that had just come upon him. If you look at verses 20-22 uh, in your Bible, you're going to see there that we have the famous words of, of, of Job, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I... Shall I return there? The Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's where we left Job. Satan failed in chapter 1. Uh, Satan failed to, to prove his, we can call it premise or hypothesis, that, if it's proving to be a hypothesis, that uh, Job would stop worshiping God if the material blessings were removed from, from him. He is miserable. He is suffering, but he is still faithful to the Lord as chapter two, uh, 1, verse 22 ends with this statement. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with, uh, with wrong. So it's a, it's a strong statement about Job. It's interesting that as chapter 2 goes on, if you look at verse 10, the very last clause of verse 10, there's another statement about Job's righteousness and it says this, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. A little less strong than the statement at the end of chapter 2, right? In chapter, in chapter 1, chapter 2 just says that he didn't sin with his lips instead of saying that in all these things, Job was, was righteous in what he was doing. And notice that once again in chapter 2, it is God that brings Job to Satan's attention. In verse 3, it is God that says, hey, See, Job, Job didn't, didn't cave. You said he was going to cave. He didn't cave. And God then, in the, there in verse 3 of chapter 2, charges Satan with malice and vindicates Job for his integrity. But if you notice there in that verse 3 of chapter 2, God says more there than he did in chapter 1. It's almost the same speech, but he adds some things there in verse 3. Notice there in verse 3. Um, have you considered my servant Job? That's what the Lord says. And there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. This is exactly what God said in chapter 1 as well. 
But here we have some new things that God says. He says, And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without a cause. Do you find God's comment to Satan challenging and perplexing? Yes. Okay. No, it, it, at face, on its face, it seems as if God is acknowledging being influenced by Satan. You incited me to do that. Right? That's the word he uses there. So does this text mean that does this text mean that God's will can be influenced and altered by the plans and will of Satan? We are very quickly to say no. Right? And and no is the right reason, the right answer, but we need to understand why. You need to, you can't just say no without knowing why. Right? The author here is trying to accomplish at least three things by including this comment by God to Satan. First one is God, uh, he wants to make sure that people understand that God is sovereign and is ultimately responsible for all that Job experienced. Satan was only able to do those things to Job because God had allowed, given Satan permission to do that. Satan is not allowed to touch Job without God's permission at all. Okay, so that's the first thing that uh, this comment is, is, is telling us. The second thing is making sure that we understand that Satan is still the villain. Satan, that's why we have this language of Satan inciting God uh, to do this. Uh, the use of the term incited is not meant to speak to God's will being subject to Satan's influence, but, being, uh, but rather to squarely place the blame for, for all of this at the feet of our great enemy. Satan is guilty of what he's doing to Job, not God. And that's a mystery of our religion. God is, respons- God is the one that ordains everything that comes to pass. You only sin because in eternity past, God ordained that. But at the same time, he's not culpable for the actions of his free agents. That, that's what we are. So God is responsible, but not culpable. And the author of, of Job adds this comment here about Satan inciting God for us to understand that even though God is permitting, Satan is still guilty of sin and God is not. Because God is, the, the, there's no sin in him. There's no darkness in him. He is not tempted by sin. There's, there's no sin in him. And he doesn't cause other people to sin in a way that he is culpable for it. He's the only being that can do that. The only one that can actually ordain things to happen and not be morally culpable. That's another way of saying guilty of the sins that he has ordained. Do you understand what I'm saying? Not that you understand how that works, because I, I cannot help you with that. But do you understand that that's what the Bible teaches? Okay, that on one hand, God is sovereign over all things. On the other hand, we're still guilty for our own sins, and we cannot blame God. Remember how um, Adam tried that? He said, the, the, the woman you gave me, she's the one who made, saying, you, God, you, you're the one that's guilty. And I guess, ah, no, it doesn't work. You're the one that sinned. Uh, you're responsible for it. And then he, that comment is also added so that we realize that Job, that Job is righteous and Satan was wrong about, about him. So those are the three things that that unusual, perplexing comment are try, is trying to, to accomplish. But ultimately, 
Satan failed in his original goal of demonstrating that Job had only worshipped God because God prospered Job. Because after everything was taken, all his material possessions, his status in society, and his children, he still was worshipping God at the end of the chapter. Any questions about what I've said so far? Exactly that. Whatever you think responsible means, that's what I... It, just in regular everyday language, responsible, in charge of, caused. That's all that has to do with responsible. Culpable, culpable means guilty. There's a big, a, a, there's, those two words mean two different. So responsible in the fact that No, he appointed. He said, in eternity past, he said, on this day, on this year, at this hour, Satan is going to afflict Job. Nothing happens outside of God's active coordination. So he is responsible, but at the same time, the Bible teaches that he's not guilty of sin. Whoever is doing the thing is guilty, even though it's being appointed from eternity past, whoever is doing it is guilty of that sin. Those are two very good friends that seem to be unreconciled, and in eternity they are reconciled. We shouldn't try to spend a lot of time trying to reconcile. This, these are two poles in the Bible. These are two truths that our puny minds may not be able to, to quite put together perfectly. Lois? I'm not sure I want to ask this question, but... Yeah, because, because there is dumb questions. <laughs> Contrary to what you've been taught your whole life in Sunday school, this is Wednesday night. There is dumb questions. <laughs> Risk it, Lois. So... How does free will work in that? So we, uh, we have... Do you, know, do you know that we're... Uh, our confession of faith, Westminster Confession of Faith, is one of the few standard confession of faith that actually includes a chapter on free will. It's called Of Free Will. So we believe in free will. But what the Bible teaches regarding free will is that your will is free from any outward influence. Nobody can make you do anything. No. no. And, 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 and Keith says, yes, I know that about Lois. Nobody can do... make No. No, none of us. Nobody can make us do anything from the outside. Our will is only bound to our own heart, our own nature. It will operate exactly like our heart is. So if you have a bad heart, the, I like a good analogy for the will is a machine that functions perfectly. You put the input, whatever input you get on one side, you have a particular output on the other side. But the, out, the input is, uh, is what comes from the heart. And if the heart is unregenerate, not, hasn't been changed, then out of the heart comes all kinds of things, like Mark chapter 7, and that's what pushes the will to do what the will does. But it's not, it's not coming from the outside, because it's not what comes into the man that defiles the man, is what comes out of the heart. So we, we have completely free will. Even if somebody has a gun to our heads, we still have the choice of dying, of getting shot in the head. That, that person is not making us do anything. So, yes, we have free will from any outward influence is only bound to our own heart. And if we have a heart that hasn't been... So God doesn't necessarily change our will. He changes our heart. And once our heart's changed, then now the will is able to move towards God. Because now we have a heart that's moving towards God. Where before, you didn't have that. And that's why an unregenerate person can't somehow just choose to believe in God and have faith without first being regenerated by the Spirit of God. You know, being born again or being born from above, as Jesus says in John chapter 3. Is that more than what you bargained for? No, I was great. 
Okay, good. Right. That was not a dumb question. Good job, Lois. Yes. <laughs> Anything else? All right, we're going to move then to scene two. It starts at verse four. Satan doubles down uh, on, uh, on Job and attacking Job. Look at verse four. Uh, did I skip a scene? What did I do with verses four through six? Let's read and see what we're going to do with it. <laughs> Should be part of scene one, sorry. Uh, so Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that I, a man has, he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot, to the crown of his head, and he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women. Speak, uh, speak shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? You know that this Job did not sin with his lips. So Satan responds to God's declaration of Job's vindication by suggesting that it will be broken if God allows Satan to attack Job personally directly. Satan said, sure, he still worshipped you because he didn't let me touch him. He let me touch his family, he let me touch his, his possessions, his reputation, but he did not let me touch him directly, he did not let me to attack him directly. And, and that's Job's argument, that the only reason... Job still worshiping God because he, wasn't, he hasn't suffered enough. He has to suffer a little more. If, if Satan's getting more, is given more permission to do more than Satan will, than, than uh, uh, Job will turn away from God. And he uses this, this interesting expression there in verse 4 where he says, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. And Satan is trying to secure permission from God to inflict personal and bodily pain on Job. So he uses the expression skin for skin. And our friendly Scottish Puritan uh, pastor says that this is the meaning of this expression, a skin for skin. A man will bear other burdens better as long as his skin is kept healthy. And his skin then stands for the body. In intimating the more personal that afflictions are, the trial is the sharper and the worse to be born. And God then grants Satan permission to inflict even greater pain on Job in verse 6, where God says, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So just anything short of killing him, you are free to do. Let me ask you this again. Does this strike you as unfair that God, who is sovereign, allows Satan to attack Job again, this time in an even more personal way. The book of Job is not an easy book to go through. It's not an easy book to s submit yourself to. Do you wish God had said something different at this point? Well, Christopher Ash is a British commentator, and he, he, writes a, he wrote a very accessible uh, commentator, commentary on the book of Job, he suggests that if we were writing the story, we would have written it differently. 
No, no matter how godly you are, no matter how scholarly you are, you probably would have written it a little differently than what's in here. Perhaps we'd said, we'd written something like this, that God would say to Satan, enough is enough. The man has suffered more than any human being in one day. He has been taken from riches to bankruptcy, from greatness to destitution, from a happy family to utter bereavement. That man worships me because he knows I am worthy of worship and of trial. I think, I think that's how we would have scripted the story. You know? And then you know, Job would ride into the sunset. Well, he'd have to walk because all these animals got killed. But So he would walk into the, uh, the sunset at this point. But while we wish that God had said words like this, he did not. And why? Why would God allow this? Why would God, why would God permit uh, such great and extreme, and extreme suffering in Job's life? Well, this is really what the rest of the book is going to be spending talking about. We're going to address this a little bit when we get to the lessons for us section of this, uh, this lesson, this, this time of teaching. We, then we move to scene three, but any questions before me to... I'm not, I'm not yet trying to attempt to answer the question, why? Okay, so if you ask why, well, you have to wait a little bit. Any other questions regarding the, the scene, the second scene? All right, we move to scene three where more suffering is inflicted on Job. Uh, in, starting in verse seven, it says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord... And struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and and so on. Uh, Satan didn't waste any time in ex- exercising his newfound permission to attack Job. The, this attack on Job is not only personal but comprehensive. In verse seven, it says that from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head, is covered in boils, and all he can do, all he can do, is sit there. In the pile of dust, the pile of garbage he's been sitting on, grab some piece of a piece of a, a clay of pottery and try to scratch himself all his his boil. And Satan is strategic about this attack. Satan strikes him with a physical sickness that he knows will also render Job a social outcast. This, how cozy does it make you feel looking at a guy that's covered in boils from top to bottom? You don't want to be around them. You, know, you, don't, you want to throw up when you look at them. And, and it's just not something that uh, you want to be around. And, and, Job, and Satan strategically did that, right? Because you could have given him liver cancer. Super uh, bad and is, suffer a lot, but there'll be no social, no real social effect uh, to that. But by attacking his skin, Satan has isolated Job in his suffering. He's made him alone in his job, in his, in his suffering. And as you read through the book, you can pick up all kinds of different physical illnesses that uh, uh, Satan struck uh, Job with. Uh, Robert, uh, Richard Belcher uh, went, did that. He went to the book and picked up all the different illnesses uh, that, uh, that uh, Job lists there. Fever and chills was part of what Satan struck Job with. Darkening and shriveling of the skin. So, almost sounds like gangrene. No. Um, red eyes swollen from weeping. Diarrhea. 
sleepness and delirium, bad breath. Uh, it's funny that of all the things Job chooses to list that uh, is really suffering with bad breath, emaciation, so he's, he's just withering away to nothing, and excruciating pain throughout his body. So this is the, the, the boils get highlighted here in chapter 1, in chapter 2, but these are all the things that uh, Job is suffering with. And this very visible misery leads Job's wife to give him really bad advice. Look at verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Well, just at the risk of being super easy, it's super obvious, it is important that we realize that she's wrong and she's acting as an agent of Satan. She's actually trying to, I think unbeknownst to her, trying to do exactly what Satan's trying to do. And it's really, hard, it's really easy to be hard on her. It's really easy to say, I can't believe this woman. Uh, I can't believe she did that. But we have to also realize that she was suffering tremendously as well. She lost all her children. She lost all her income. She lost everything. Her husband is covered in boils and suffering. And now he has bad breath as well. So uh, she is suffering. Uh, Richard Belcher again says, One must remember that she too has lost her wealth, her position, her children. When people lose their securities, it is easy to respond out of panic because life is no longer sure and the future uncertain. She also expresses pity toward Job. She sees that he is suffering greatly and offers a statement that would at least enable him to bring his suffering to an end. She responds out of that, this desperation of Job's situation and says some things that she might not normally say. Whatever her motives, though, his wife's words hurt Job and added to his misery. Look at verse 10. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept from God, uh, accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job acknowledged that his misery is coming from God. Remember in chapter 1, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. He wasn't trying to alleviate any tension from God. He wasn't trying to excuse God. He understood that God was sovereign. You know, I've been reading the book of Job for years, and in my mind, I've always assumed that at the end, Job had a new wife. Remember how at the end, if you read the book of Job, at the end, God gives them another seven sons, and three daughters, and the daughters are beautiful, and they give us the names of the daughters, and he has more sheep and camel and ox than he had to begin with. And in my mind, uh, that's all with a new wife. That's all with a new wife. But it doesn't say that. So at some point, this woman also came to her senses, and God forgave her, and she was also blessed by God. And this new life at the end is Job and this wife, the same wife, that uh, at this point was so discouraged that it was thinking it was better to curse God and die than to continue going on. And as this, uh, uh, so, and so we have here the wife telling Job to curse. And while understandable, uh, given uh, her own suffering, the words of Job's wife leave Job without the support of his last surviving family member. He's alone now. 
the person who was most intimate with him, the one who was bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, has abandoned him. And this makes Satan's attack even more painful and personal because he's not only suffering, he's suffering alone. There's nobody anymore that is with him on his team. And as this scene closes, we find our human hero riddled with uh, oozing sores, seated on a garbage pile, crippled by misery. That's where he is here at verse 11, at verse 10. He is, is also utterly alone, forsaken even by his own wife. And then we come to scene four, and that we're going to end here tonight. The three amigos are introduced. Look at verses 11 through 13. Now when Job's three friends heard of all his adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place, Eliphaz, a Temanite, Bildad, a Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite. For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voice and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to them to him, for they saw that his grief was great. So far, as verse 10 implies, Job has remained righteous. And the impression we get as we read verse 11 is that as Job is still sitting on the ashes, his three friends show up. He's still sitting there, he's still covered in oil, he's still uh, mourning, these friends show up. And given the importance of, the, of Job's friends, it is worth reflecting a little bit on them for a moment. Now what is it that we know about them? Well, by their conversation with Job, we can assume that they were peers of Job. They weren't strangers. They were, they were at least the same status uh, as Job. And they probably were of similar age to Job, and considered men of good reputation and wisdom since they had access to Job, who was also that. Robert Alden says, these three probably were wealthy sheiks like Job. They had the time to talk for what may have been several months with their suffering comrade. Nothing stole about their families or stations in life. They seemed to have come from a distance, yet they apparently spoke the same language and drew their illustrations and observations from the same common pool of expressions or experiences that Job had. So even though they may have come from far enough, far enough where they're speak, speaking, speaking a different language and where the examples they use are so different from Job. So they're seeing the same things in nature, the same, the same experiences there. And when Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar arrived, they were immediately struck by the magnitude of Job's suffering to the point of not even recognizing him in verse 12. So he's been so afflicted physically that they couldn't even recognize him. And then they did, they, at that point, they do the best thing they did in the entire book in verse 13. They sat in silence with him. At that point, they were being great counselors. And, uh, when, and they did that for seven days. They just sat there with him for seven days in silence, just mourning with, with him. At that point, they're doing a good job of helping um, them. We're going to end here tonight because of time, but just uh, a preview of what we're going to leave for next week and as we enter chapter 3. Uh, there, there are two lessons that uh, uh, I want us to, we're going to look at in the next week, but two lessons to get from here. One is, suffering is hard, 
suffering alone is harder. And the second lesson is comfort is ultimately found in the one who suffered alone. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered alone on the cross for us. And we're going to look at those two things in more detail as we begin next week. Any questions before we close? All right, let's pray. Father Heaven, thank you so much that you are uh, a God who opens our eyes to see your goodness. Father, there are things that we don't understand, and that actually makes sense, since if we understood you completely, you'd be just like us. Not, not a God, but just like us. So we praise you that there are things that are beyond our understanding because of your infinitude. We thank you that you're an infinite God, much greater than all of us, and we pray that we be satisfied with that. We pray that these tensions that we see will not be something that discourages us, but it will encourage us at, in, in, into much greater love for you, who is other than we are. And we thank you that you are uh, kind enough to give us a glimpse of your nature and of your control of all things. Help us to grow in our ability to suffer well. We pray that we will be able to to come along each other in our suffering to encourage each other to look to Christ. Christ in Jesus' name. Amen.